Hello and welcome to Energy Voice Out Loud, where we are leading the global energy conversation. My name is Ed Reed. I'm the Africa editor at Energy Voice, and I'm glad to welcome Hamish Penman, digital journalist, and Andrew Dykes, content editor. Alistair, I'm already been dragged, kicking and screaming temporarily from the seat of power for, for, for a much-deserved holiday. So we're on our own today, uh, finding our way through the post-Eastern malaise. Chaps, how was it? Uh, good amounts of chocolate eaten over the over, over the weekend, I hope? Yeah, I did my usual thing of going to the shops to buy Easter eggs the day after Easter to uh, really cash in on those Easter egg sales. Um, so that that's my little hot tip for everyone. Um, in, uh, in the years to come very canny i was at a wedding most of the weekend so i was suitably festive uh, but also then full of chocolate to absolutely veg and recover well good i mean i think that's that's the important thing isn't it just keep those keep those chocolate levels topped up for as long as possible speaking of uh topping up it, it sounds like all change at the nztc hamish tell us what's what's been going on big change uh coming in at the nztc um, and I think I speak for pretty much everyone in Aberdeen when I say we'll be very sorry to see Colette Cohen go. She is to leave the Net Zero Technology Centre in July after about seven years in post. Um, a replacement has already been named and she'll be well kent to, to many in the northeast already. Um, Myrtle Dawes, who is currently the NZTC Solutions Centre Director, she joined the body in 2019. And I think if you were to say that Colette was going to be standing down, Myrtle would have been your odds-on favourite for the job um to take over so i saw a really strong appointment there um so i was at the nztc's particularly swanky office in queen's road on monday for a sit down chat with both of them to talk about reasons behind the switch uh immediate priorities for myrtle what's next for colette's um it was a really lovely interview actually particularly upbeat um so the NZTC basically put a new strategy in place around 18 months ago to ensure its long-term prosperity of the company Many will remember it was formed with about 180, I think it was on the nose actually, 180 million of UK and Scottish government funding secured as part of the Aberdeen City Region deal in 2017. So when work was going into bed, this blueprint, Colette said there was a recognition that it's going to take about five years to implement and that's longer than she planned on being there. So the wheels were put in motion from that point really and work kicked off to find a successor and Colette says there was this kind of recognition that they had this going to use the phrase oven ready but it's difficult to detach that from brexit now but an oven ready candidates uh, in the wings in myrtle so some stats from colette's time in charge of the nztc that i thought were particularly impressive so that during her tenure the center has co-invested more than 253 million with industry in a whole range of technologies screens uh, more than 1800 new technologies progressed 175 field trials helped over 33 technologies to commercialize and through its techx accelerator program 45 tech startups have been supported um, with their pioneers raising over 75 million in equity since graduating from the program so a huge amount to be proud of there um, but Colette said, and I quote, it's now not the right time to do Monday to Friday anymore. It's time to do something else. So what next? It's always the question that I think people are most intrigued to find out when these announcements are made, particularly because it gives often gives an insight into people's interests outside of work. Um, well, Colette is an avid golfer, as is her husband, so a lot of time will be spent on the course trying to get that handicap down from 13, which is already pretty impressive, I think. 
Uh, she's on a number of boards and says there's maybe space for one or two more in there as well to continue that work. And her husband's also retired, so spending more time with him and she thanked him as well for this, his support over the years. And just a bit more widely on Colette's legacy in the Northeast. Now, I don't think it's probably... It's not too grandiose to say that she, kind of along with Deirdre Mickey and, and Chandler Reeson and others I've almost certainly forgotten, have kind of changed the face of the energy industry in the region to have a number of women in high-profile energy roles. It's it, It's been a kind of a real break from the past. Um, in many ways, I think it's probably changed the sector in the eyes of many. And in turn, that probably has fed into the, the narrative around the energy transition and trying to move towards a greener future. So a real legacy left behind and... Yeah, what I'm sure that Myrtle will pick up and, and carry forward. And, and and so sort of looking to the future with a, with a sort of a new face, or although obviously a sort of a known face in many ways coming in. Are there, are there, are there any changes that you might think, or is it was it was it very much the sort of the continuity candidate? Yeah, I think that would probably be uh, a fair comment, and I I wouldn't envisage any big overhauls. Especially I, I asked Myrtle about her immediate priorities. She said. Um, lobbying governments on the needs of technology producers and and the role of oil and gas and green technologies kind of coming together to to deliver on the energy transition. She spoke about the kind of need to change the narrative as well and how the NZTC can be a part of that and also how the centre can also be kind of for those who are not in Aberdeen or the Northeast, there is a real drive at the moment to try and give us the city a real shot in the arm. You, you walk down the kind of Union Street, which is the uh, Aberdeen's main thoroughfare, and it, it's pretty dire. There's empty shop after empty shop. So there is this big concerted effort with business leaders to try and help the city out. And she spoke about how the NZTC can be a part of that in terms of attracting startups, retaining startups. Uh, so I think that will be a, a, another key focus. But yeah, I would expect that it will be a lot of continuing on the the work that Colette's done before and also implementing the rest of this strategy that we're, we're now 18 months into. And they're also kind of expanding the services that they offer as well. So last year, I think they, they uh, signed up to kind of do kind of corporate transition advisory, it sounded like, almost in, in, in the kind of DNV model and, and helping other uh, companies with transition plans or with technologies that they could adopt. So it, it seems like there is an expansion plan for NZTC, although I think they said they would remain a kind of not-for-profit tech innovator startup type firm yeah I, th I think like many people kind of the more that the the transition progresses they're just at, increasingly adding strings to their bows so there's talk alistair reported on it last year that they're going in the process of developing a uk geothermal center in aberdeen that will be based at the nztc with help from um durham university as well so i think there'll be a lot of broadening their horizons increasingly as, as more and more startups targeted at different areas um, start to come to, to fruition. Just a wee bit on Myrtle quickly as well, because I didn't, didn't really touch on her background overly there. So she um, is a chartered chemical engineer by trade, began working offshore for oil giant BP, um, as did Colette actually, so they've both got that in common. Uh, she also spent time at BHP Petroleum and British gas owner Centrica, um, has also holds a number of um, non-executive positions, has been included um, as one of 100 women to watch in a FTSE board report 2017. Um, and yeah, she'll formally take up the reins in July um, and yeah, making engaging with policymakers a, a key priority when that date rolls around. And, and so in terms of sort of, you know, what uh, it's trying to do, I mean, I think obviously, you know, we're sort of 
inevitably kind of talking about the energy transition but is 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 there also a role for i suppose kind of going into bat for uh, the sort of traditional sort of oil and gas interests of, of of the north sea for sure i think especially in aberdeen i don't think there are many organizations companies where they're where there's a kind of distinctive line between the two i think most have their transition piece and most have their oil and gas piece and often the two doth meet um and there's a lot of crossover and it's leading a lot on electrification um and things like that uh, in terms of studies um and just given the nature of, it, of its boards and uh the work that it does there's a lot of oil and gas heritage in there that will be adapted um and used within the industry to to kind of push it forwards in terms of bringing down its operational emissions um, and increasing efficiency offshore and, and things like that. But I think it certainly will go into bat for the sector, but it, it's more sp- specifically on the technology side of things. So that kind of small, more granular level rather than perhaps big market kind of like, like the OE, like your OUK does with kind of large um, industry sentiment. I think this will be, far more on the on the kind of on the little guy fantastic well that sounds like a a really positive uh, move from the nztc oh we're going to take a short break and then we're going to come back and hear some more about another set of acronyms uk export finance can help your business grow overseas last year we helped uk exporters access 7.4 billion pounds of support by providing government-backed finance and insurance we can help you win export contracts with attractive finance terms Got orders overseas? Fulfill them with a working capital loan. Exporting to a challenging market? Make sure you get paid with the right insurance. To get the exporter's edge, search UK Export Finance or call us on 0800 538 5111. Fantastic. So, Andy, tell us the CMA. Yeah, is it is it is it the the, the bane of our existence or, or a or a, or a positive force? Uh, both. Let's say both. <laughs> I just want one answer. <laughs> <laughs> this is a piece I worked on uh, a couple of weeks ago, basically looking at uh, the North Sea market. So competition regulation is obviously nothing new and it affects every sector. But uh, the North Sea is increasingly maturing and I think inevitably will become a kind of smaller and more consolidated market over the next few years. Um, but that kind of looks like the competition regulator is going to get more involved in it as that that transition happens. So I spoke to Jonathan Ford and Natura Gracia, who are uh, partners at Linklaters. Uh, and, you know, we talked a lot about kind of competition in general. And, you know, big tech is, is the big one for, for competition regulators at the moment and the one that gets the most headlines. Um, but they were saying, you know, regulators are still concerned that there remains a sufficient uh, volume of competitors and volume of companies in these kind of traditional industries, as they termed it, like oil and gas. And uh, the way we're seeing that intervention is, you know, just increased probes and increased interest in a lot of deals that are going through the North Sea sector. So a, a quick recap is um, we've had a merger bet- or a proposed merger between Flotel and ProSafe in 2020 that was called off after a competition probe. Um, we had CHC helicopters acquisition of Babcock, which was I think, completed and then unwound after the, C- uh, the CMA got involved. There was the global merger of Noble and Maersk, uh, both drilling rig operators, which uh, did eventually go through with some concessions. And then a few months ago, we had Baker Hughes takeover of Altus Intervention, a well services firm. Um, the same thing happened there. So there was a kind of brief investigation and some concessions made and the deal eventually did go through. Um, but what the, the partners were saying was that over the last few years, uh, they are seeing the CMA adopting at least 
in terms of the outcomes of their investigations, what is looking like a more kind of interventionist stance in, in the market. Ever the lawyers, they were saying that, uh, you know, the CMA's view is, would be that they're only applying the frameworks they've always applied and uh, it's always been the same. Um, but they said certainly in terms of kind of legal work and outcomes, they've definitely seen kind of tougher uh, implementation and, and more interest, at least in, in a lot of these deals. In, in the piece, you, you, you sort of mention uh, a sort of a reference to the CMA as a sort of a global policeman uh, in, a, in, a, in a way that sort of suggests its approach is a bit maybe out of step with some other competitions authorities. Do, do, do you think that's fair? So, yeah, they were saying, you know, it's increasingly diverging from a lot of other authorities. So the European Commission obviously has its own kind of competition uh, regulators and, and, and probes and... Uh, the CMA is sometimes applying maybe slightly different uh, judgments or potentially harsher judgments than, than these other markets are seeing. I think that the Noble Maersk case is probably the interesting case study for that. You know, that's a global merging of, of these two drilling uh, rig operators worth something like 2.6 billion pounds. You know, that was held up, I believe, globally as the kind of UK uh, case went through. In the end, uh, Noble volunteered to offload several uh, rem what they called remedy rigs the remedy meaning to to remedy the case with the CMA uh, to a new division of shelf drilling uh, and that was ultimately accepted as a kind of appropriate uh, way of of staving off this these competition worries in the north sea particularly i think it was specifically jackups they were worried about that this uh, merging of the two companies would leave you know very few other providers in the market um, and, and so what linklaters were also saying is that any of these cases where you're having a kind of four to three or even a three to two uh, in terms of these kind of quite often niche services so helicopters is there's, the, there's not a lot of them out there rig providers there are a few but again operating in the north sea you, you are on a limited pool and that basically anything that is going to see that kind of state of affairs uh is is probably not going to fly when the cma is, is definitely going to get involved it, it seems to date that the the main cma gripes have been on on service companies and service amalgamation so so helicopters um rigs oil field services with the kind of north sea aging and a lot of the majors looking to offload their non-core assets um it seems like kind of consolidation in the basin is is just going to continue we've obviously had the tailwind deal of with serica ithaca and and, and sicker point and it's likely that they might well go and snap up a few other assets as well. I mean, do you th do you think the CMA could intervene in a an operator merger, an operator acquisition in the future if if this kind of amalgamation continues, which it might if the the oil and gas prices stay high? So, I mean, we we focused our chat specifically on services, but yeah, this was definitely a consideration. I think what's interesting is the kind of energy security argument that's increasingly coming into play. So, I think in a case like that, it would probably depend a lot on who the who the buyer or who the uh, acquirer is in, in those situations. Um, they were talking increasingly about the kind of national security interventions that government have been making, not necessarily through the CMA, but obviously they have kind of special powers to, to do so. But any kind of defense deal that would involve China, especially, was, uh, was coming under increased scrutiny and probably wouldn't go through. And, uh, you know, we were kind of speculating that maybe with these energy security angles, and especially this, this push at the moment, and, and North Sea production, and that, and making sure that that is you know domestic production, um, that may well come into play depending on who the buyer is. Um, wh what I was also thinking about is kind of the cascading effects of that. So you know BP, Shell, they all have service stations. So if anyone was to ever kind of make bids for those companies, it may not even be the North Sea uh, upstream or even midstream 
assets that would become problems, it would be probably the consumer facing side. So things like petrol stations and, and uh, lubricants and all these consumer products, that's probably where people would uh, notice these transactions first. I wonder whether, you know, again, if, if there's any kind of uh, move to reduce competition or, or this four to three situation, um, that that may well be the kicker, and and they might have to be kind of carved off. This this sort of I suppose should we say stringent uh, sort of regulatory approach. Do you think do you think it has a sort of a deterrent effect on M and A in the market? Right. I mean, I think obviously if if companies have to do these kind of carve outs, if they have to make special exceptions for UK businesses, does that mean that uh, essentially those uh, assets would come at a discount to say similar assets in 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 other regions? I don't know about a discount, but they certainly said you know there are a lot of um when the, when the talks begin to happen in the boardroom i think the cma is basically saying there are a lot of merger deals that they had seen in the past that really shouldn't have ever left the boardroom so that conversation is getting trickier but if if you do kind of get past that stage um you're you're really going to have to come in with your your arguments prepared was their advice you know either you are going to specifically you know, if you're a global business specifically carve out your uk business and kind of leave it out of the equation in order to get it through. Or you're going to have to come in prepared with how you're going to get over these concerns. Um, that means more time on lawyers, which was obviously good for Linklaters. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, I don't know about a chilling effect, but definitely um, you're going to need to think very hard about how you want these these uh, merger deals to work. I suppose just kind of picking up from Hamish's point, right, about that kind of the the ways in which these uh, things sort of manifest. Do you think that there would also be similar scrutiny of energy transition technologies, right? Like I don't know, like offshore wind or or, or sort of vessels for for, for that market. Uh, you know, sort of I don't know, grid assets, things like that. I think yeah. I mean, I think one question I asked at the end was kind of we we have a lot of uh, investment needed for energy transition projects some of that investment and some of those firms kind of pushing it are going to inevitably come from outside the UK or outside kind of uh, known entities or partners that are already in the market. And do we risk kind of jeopardizing our ability to raise that investment if we're being very selective about uh, who we who we allow to, to kind of push these deals through? Um, and that's definitely a concern. I think if they're applying it to offshore services, they're going to apply it to you know offshore wind. They're going to apply it in, in the, if they are applying the, these kind of frameworks in, in the same way as they claim. Yeah, I think in a, in a small market, we are going to see more of that. Well, that's uh, food for thought. Um, we're going to we're going to take another quick break, uh, and then we'll come back and, and look at some more offshore opportunities. The Scott Wind Project and its nearly 28 gigawatts of offshore wind is going to bring huge opportunities to Scotland. At the same time, it needs to be developed within the wider shift towards a sustainable low-carbon future. In this second episode of Series 2 of Gigawaters, brought to you by Sustainable Growth Voice and Energy Voice Out Loud, in paid partnership with Orsted, we're going to look at skills and jobs, and how Scotland must be developed within the context of a just transition, as well as how it can be used to help transform the lives and futures of young people. I'm joined by Ben Sykes, Head of Environment, Consenting and External Affairs at Orsted, and Claire Kanakides, Head of Network Support at National Charity Onside, and a trustee on the board of the new Youth Zone in Grimsby, known as Horizon, which is being supported by Orsted. This podcast is coming soon. Fantastic. So I think we've we've heard a little bit about uh, some of the uh, some of the challenges around operating in the offshore, but I think uh, you know we, 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 what we've seen also is. Uh, 
a real return to 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 interest, particularly in the in the international opportunities. Um, so I, I I wrote a piece for the for our uh, supplement uh, this month, looking at some of those some of those opportunities, and particularly around uh, around Africa and the Middle East. And I think you know what's notable is that there has been this this return to uh, interest in these opportunities, which I think. It's really driven by the sort of the limited um, the, the limited opportunities there are out there, right? I think you know for for companies looking for scale for um, you know those projects that in that incredibly overused phrase move the needle, there aren't that many uh, many, many uh, potential places around. And clearly, in the in the offshore, and particularly the sort of the deep waters, it's it's one of the few areas where big companies can really sort of still go in and and and, and make a difference and have that sort of uh, that kind of competitive clout. So, just to give a bit of context, um, Rystad, the uh, Norwegian consultancy, said that they thought something like two hundred fourteen billion dollars would be invested in the offshore over the next two years, representing something like sixty eight percent of all sanctioned hydrocarbons in that in that period. And this is a really sort of a notable increase from from previous years when it was so it's up from about sort of forty percent, I think. So I think there's 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 a sense that um, if you want to find new sources of oil and gas, which obviously I suppose is a contested uh, issue in, in in some ways, um, perhaps where you're going to go is is really going to be the offshore. And I think you know we've seen some of that around. Um, you know, particularly Guyana, I think, has really led that uh, really led that move, and 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 the sort of the hopes to kind of emulate that uh, that that's incredibly successful run uh, elsewhere. So Guyana, I think the uh, another FBSO has just arrived there this week, and I think you know they are talking about I think is it seven FPSOs in in total for for Exxon with a sort of a total production of about a million barrels per day within the next few years so clearly for those projects that can move forwards there's an incredibly strong economic rationale and i think there was uh, hess which is a, a partnered with with exxon in guyana has put put forward some uh, some some slides really showing the uh, the economic rationale of um obviously as an american company comparing uh, the guyana off- offshore opportunity set to what they can see in the permian basin and I think you know the, uh, the 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 amount of high volume, high quality wells that you need um, in, in in say Guyana really compares incredibly favourably to uh, to 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 the Permian men. And so obviously you know looking to, to to emulate this this in other places, Namibia has kind of sprung up as a sort of a, this 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 new opportunity. So just just to refresh the mind, Total and Shell have both made some big discoveries uh, in the in the Orange Basin on that sort of close to the border of of South Africa in in Namibia, and you know both companies are I believe uh, in 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 states of sort of exploration and appraisal drilling as we speak. With more going into it, and 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 Total has really sort of talked about uh, this uh, area in, in Namibia as being a sort of a golden block, bringing up sort of similarities to its uh, its 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 major investments in in Angola. So I think there there is this sense where you know Total clearly a sort of a global player sees this opportunity set as as, as really being sort of uh, instrumental and and really playing a key part. So I think. Um, Patrick Puyan has said, uh, you know, the, the company as a whole faces a, a sort of a, a decline curve of, I think, sort of 4% per year. 
which, you know, extrapolate that out a number of years. This is a company that obviously needs new projects. And it, it really feels like Namibia, Angola, where, where, where Toyota is also investing more, possibly Suriname. These, these are the sort of opportunities that they see as being able to, you know, bring on material amounts of production and in, in a sort of a relatively kind of uh, time-constrained way. I mean, I think, you know, the ease of operating offshore, despite, you know, the, you know, weather conditions despite the deep waters despite those kind of technical challenges is in many ways a lot more promising than than some of the onshore opportunities we're seeing i'm just to, just to kind of bring in another total kind of comparison that, that that french company is also working on a project in in uganda's lake albert it's a similar sort of a size as to some of these offshore projects so it's about two hundred thousand barrels per day but that has been incredibly slow moving T- tallow made that discovery in 2005, uh, we it, it, it may start producing in a couple of years. So maybe something like sort of 20 years from discovery to first oil. Clearly, if they can make faster progress in, say, Namibia, in Angola, in Suriname, that's really kind of tipping the uh, tipping the, the the scales in favour of those offshore plans. And you can build those FPSOs in places like, say, Korea, float them over. It's a sort of a relatively known process that is that is repeatable. So there's a lot to be said in in favour of these plans, but obviously some 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 big uh, big dollar challenges. And there was the news this morning, Ed, that Chevron is looking at. Uh deals is shared block angola and congo does this does this kind of feed into to your piece as well and, and also on the congo i thought they had a, a slither of coastline how are they staking a claim to all this lovely oil off offshore yeah 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 so 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 interesting interesting reports this morning as you say hamish i think yes there are there are clearly you know kind of ways forward and and, and chevron is a kind of a historic producer in uh, sort of off, offshore uh, angola's cabinda exclave so they've they've had a really sort of a long term interest they know the area they know that sort of region extremely well and clearly again it's a company that can uh, make those sorts of deals work so i think yes i think you know looking at those opportunities there are questions around political risk. Congo, obviously, I think you know the piece was sort of talking about you know some of the some of the, the deals they, that have had to be done around Dan Gertler, uh, sort of an incredibly frequently sanctioned uh, business magnate in the, in that part of the world. So I think, yeah, there are there are there are challenges, obviously, with that. I mean, I think you know those, I suppose, are the other other difficulties. There are around those local relationships, and I think you know obviously you see so skip some of the, the the onshore problems that you might might have seen in in Uganda. But with that, you're going to bring in, you know, sort of other other challenges. So there are questions around 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 local interests, local businesses. There are clearly going to be some quite big due diligence uh, challenges in terms of sort of how you structure a deal to extricate Dan Gertler, who Chevron would struggle to do with business with as a a man who's been sanctioned by the 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 US and others for uh, so for some of his dealings. So I think there are there are those challenges. Um, and I think, you know, as we've, we've spoken about recently in uh, in Namibia, you know, Namcor has faced its own problems around uh, around the drug busts, around around the arrests, around, you know, sort of suspensions of top executives. So I think, you know, clearly those are the sorts of challenges that will, you know, that are, you know, will have to be kind of conquered. Um, but I think that the opportunity set, it makes it a really, really, really hard one to to ignore. And, you know, you, you, you brought up Chevron in Angola and sort of the, you know, Congo, 
Chevron has also uh, farmed into Namibia fairly recently and is, is is sort of pressing ahead with with opportunities there. Chevron also working, you know, offshore Equatorial Guinea, and it's really interesting because I think you know Chevron a few years ago after making that that acquisition of Noble Energy. We we were thinking maybe you know is was it going to move away from uh, from from Africa and that sort of level of political risk, and and the, you know there were some discussions that it was maybe looking to sort of sell some of those those, those assets down, but it, it looks like it's really sort of changed its its thinking around that, and it is kind of has kind of gone back to to kind of rethinking how these how these projects how these sums really add up. So I think. Chevron's a really interesting example because um, in the in the sort of the midst of that sort of shale revolution that we saw, you know, obviously over the last sort of fifteen years, American companies really pulled out of Africa. I think obviously kind of deterred by that sort of that the the negative of political risk and that sort of appeal of a sort of you know being able to to frack a well and drill horizontally and all those kind of things that you can do in you know sort of North Dakota or Texas or wherever. And I think recently we might have seen. I mean, it's obviously a bit out of my out of my remit, but there are kind of questions emerging around kind of uh, cash flow out of out of out of shale wells in the U.S. and some of those problems around uh, you know how you get that uh, get 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 your money out. So if you can make those uh, they make offshore projects work, if you can handle that offshore risk, if you can handle those kind of political challenges, then I think. There is a real case to be made in uh, around Africa, and I think you know that what we're seeing is is that sort of return. I think clearly, uh, again, it kind of comes back to it being kind of driven as a sort of a factor of price, doesn't it? So I think you know clearly we've seen oil and gas prices move up recently over the last sort of uh, eighteen months. If prices go down, you know, obviously, you know, that's uh, that's a, it's an incredibly kind of a broad macro question, looking at sort of the banking turmoil looking at China, looking at how demand is working out. Obviously, OPEC cutting price, cutting production recently in an, an attempt to shore up prices. There are obviously a number of, of, of balls in the air around kind of moving those projects forwards. But as we've seen off Guyana, as we're seeing off Namibia, if you, if you, if you can make it work, then those resources are phenomenal world-class opportunities so we will we'll see how it works out but it, it really does feel like a sort of a moment of optimism for the sector and and, and obviously a really sort of a positive uh, story to finish on so i think i'm gonna i'm gonna say at that point thank you to hamish thank you to andrew thank you to our crack production team for bringing it all together i've been ed reed thanks for listening Out Loud is the podcast from Energy Voice, leading the global energy conversation. Bookmark and subscribe to energyvoice.com, sign up to our newsletter and follow us on LinkedIn and Twitter for expert analysis and insight right across the energy sector. Subscribe to Out Loud on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. And please do encourage colleagues and friends to listen to Out Loud too. If you've enjoyed it, leaving a rating or review, especially on Apple Podcasts, helps others discover it too. Thank you.